0: Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, reconnecting with someone that I I've, I've, haven't seen in a long time, you may know him from the band The Vatican Commandos, you may know him from the band AWOL, you may also know him from his solo records, which have you know, been pretty popular over the years. Today on the show, uh, my buddy, I haven't seen him forever, though, Moby and I get to reconnect. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can send me a uh, an email there. It's run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan will get the message to me, and we can communicate that way. He also runs a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Both of those are respectively turned out a punk is their, uh, their, their titles at turned out a punk, I guess on Instagram and however that works on Facebook. Uh, there's also a Tumblr page, but I don't think we update that anymore. So don't, don't worry about the Tumblr page. Uh, so you can send the messages to him and he'll get the messages to me. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. And, uh, you can send me messages there and we can communicate that way, but I don't, I don't, Check those too often, so if I, I'm slow on getting back to those, I, I apologize. Send Trist in the message. that He and I talk all the time, every day. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling everyone you know about it. Letting everyone know that you know, out there, that we're doing this thing and that you enjoy it. That, that's the best way to support it. You can also support it by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk. And thank you to everyone that does that. Check out footnotes over there and, and other fun stuff. And I really do appreciate all the Patreon supporters uh, immensely. Uh, speaking of support, this thing would not be possible with the kind, loving support of Vans, who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just just don't lose money at it uh, anymore. And <laughs> they've helped me kind of cover the cost of this thing, which has been Really great. And thank you very much to them for doing that. You can also support this podcast, though, by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice. And thank you to all those people that do do that. You know, I really appreciate it. Even the negative ones. You know, it's constructive criticism that I need. You know, that's what we all respond to. All right. Today on the show, Moby is here. Now, Moby is someone that I'm sure, well, everyone (laughs) You know, my 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 family and people like that are familiar with because of his massive success in the world of popular music, and and also he's had, you know, like a real kind of key role in dance music and the rise of dance music uh, throughout the eighties and into the nineties. But for a lot of us as as punk hardcore kids, we know that Moby is someone that came out of hardcore bands. Moby of course played in the Vatican commandos and also the phenomenal AWOL as well. And someone that I got to meet, you know, we talk about this in the episodes. You're going to hear this in a second anyway, but it's someone I got to meet playing this wild fucked up show. That was 12 hours years ago. And then I got to hang out with more recently and talk about punk interviewing him for this video project, which hasn't come out yet, but I really got a sense that punk rock deeply affected Moby and for as big as he got as a, as a pop star and as like sort of this sort of whacking things hanging from my ceiling As, as big as he became as a pop star and a pop culture figure, punk rock is something that, uh, you know, hung heavy on him. You'll, you'll, you'll hear what I'm talking about in this show. Uh, some notes. I did not bother re litigating that whole flipper discussion. If you're unfamiliar with it, there's, there's countless interviews with Flipper where they talk about it, but I have recently seen footage of Moby playing with Flipper. So, you know, we, I didn't force him to have to rediscuss that thing on here, Uh, but we do have a really fun conversation about punk rock and the importance of it and where it went. And anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Moby. On Turned Out A Punk. (laughs) Moby, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Well, as we were just reminiscing off air, we've actually uh, collaborated in a live setting before when you came up and joined Fucked Up for some songs years ago. So thank you once again for doing that, by the way.
1: Yeah, that was such an odd experience (laughs) because... um, I lived at the time on Mott, on Mott Street in Lower Manhattan and it it was summertime if I remember correctly and so I got this message did I want to come play a couple songs with you guys at like 3 in the afternoon at some random space on the Bowery and I didn't know what to expect and I walk in it's 140 degrees there in a space that would comfortably hold fifty people, there are probably three hundred people in there. <laughs> yeah. And if I remember correctly, we played a Ramon song, and I'm not sure if we also played a Minor Threat song, and a Vatican Commando song too. Oh, that's right. right. So it was just like boom, boom, boom. Get covered in sweat, <laughs> and then I and then I went home and you know made tea and read the New Yorker. It was just such a such a like really like odd punk rock experience. Well, it was. And I think actually, correct
0: me if I'm wrong. I think you even actually had to go immediately afterwards off to a friend's, uh, child's christening or something. Like you had to like make a mad dash. You were just like, you know, total like, you know, hats off to you for doing this, but
1: came in, played the songs and then had to take off into the afternoon. Yep. I'm sure. Yeah. That, something just random and strange and demanding.
0: <laughs> well, once again, I appreciate you doing it. And as much as I appreciate you doing this tonight, because uh, it's going to be a, a lot of fun talking about this because I think AWOL is
1: a criminally underrated band. I don't know if AWOL Wall be considered a punk rock band. Do you know? Um, and this is I'm, I'm going to, we were, we were class. Basically I was in two bands in high school. I was in the Vatican Commandos, which was a, a hardcore band. And then AWOL, which my goal with AWOL was for us to sound sort of like Joy Division and Echo and the Bunnymen. Well,
0: I lump both of those groups into the punk rock, especially with, in the case of the Joy Division, but we'll get to all that in one second. But I want to start off the way they all start off on this show. Moby, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, I, well, okay. It's one of two things and I'll tell you both of them. The first was, there was a writer for Saturday Night Live named Mike O'Donohue. And he went by Mr. Mike. And he put out this weird movie called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video. And all it was, this was pre-internet, pre-YouTube. This would have been 1978, 79. It was just a collection of his favorite random video clips, and he released it as a movie. And for some reason, my mom and I went to go see it at an <laughs> art house theater in Norwalk, Connecticut. And it was a bunch of random clips like cats jumping off diving boards. etc. just random stupidity. But one of the best things in it is he had Sid Vicious Singing My Way, which was from Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Mm-hmm. And I remember, because if you've seen this clip of Sid Vicious doing My Way, like the first minute and a half is him doing a kind of shitty, ironic version of traditional My Way. And then it becomes a 1970s punk rock version of My Way. And I remember sitting in the theater and I just thought, like, what? is this like i had i had heard of Sid Vicious he might have even still been no i, don't know, I brought, he was probably dead at that time i don't know but um so i saw that and i just thought it was so fascinating and then there was a radio station in new york called wnew and it was a commercial station but they occasionally played new wave like i heard gary newman and elvis costello but they played, and I taped this on my grandfather's dictaphone. They played, um, I fought the law, the clash cover song. And I didn't know what they were, the clash were singing, but I recorded it off the radio and I kept listening to it. Cause it really is this like very like one of the fastest early punk rock songs. Um, and I just between Sid Vicious singing my way and recording The Clash off the radio, I just thought it, it all was so exciting and subversive. Because keeping in mind, in Connecticut at that time, like the status quo was guitar rock. It was The Kinks and The Who and it was classic rock. And I had a guitar teacher who only liked guitar solos and he just thought that punk rock was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard because there were no real guitar solos. And so I had to like hear this music and find this music and love this music on in, on my own in private, you know, because you couldn't you couldn't go to school and say to people like, hey, have you heard The Clash? Because like you would get maligned as, you know. I'm not allowed to say what we were called at the time, but like it, trust me, it was some, some really bad epithets.
0: Yeah. It's, it, it, it was like definitely like an outside perspective to be in a punk rock at that time.
1: It was so obscure that it, I mean, it was like, yeah, I mean like there are things that you just, you weren't allowed to do. You weren't allowed to like David Bowie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you weren't allowed to like New Wave and punk rock. And this was, you know, 1978, 1979. And then I remember my friends, Jim and Dave, we somehow confessed to each other that we all liked New Wave and punk rock. It was like a dirty secret. It was like, and and then we started like buying punk rock, like saving up money to buy punk rock records. And, and then I remember my friend Paul Johnson, came back from England and his brother had a copy of nevermind the bollocks and he loaned it to me. And I just thought what in the like this is the most terrifying, exciting thing I've ever heard in my entire life.
0: It's still a perfect record when you go back and listen to it. Like it's amazing how it sounds just as fresh today.
1: Well, it's funny cause I have become pretty good friends with Steve Jones And if you're, I don't, well, I'm okay. Back in the seventies, the thing about punk rock is everyone always said like they couldn't play, you know, the musicians Mm -hmm. didn't know how to play their instruments. But if you go back and listen to the damned and the clash and the sex pistols and Susie and the banshees and all the early bands, they really, they were all great musicians and they made great sounding records. So I don't know where this, they don't know how to play and they made terrible sounding records came from like, because this, that nevermind the bollocks or the first class, every clash album, like sonically they're phenomenal and they're really well written songs and beautifully played. So, you know, they were a lot more, they were a lot better at, you know, better musicians than anyone ever gave them credit for.
0: Absolutely. And like you're saying, like it, it, those records sound so good. Like it's, it's funny how records that came out a few years later sound way more dated than, than those records today.
1: Yeah, because I mean they were they were made with in really nice studios with Mm -hmm. great microphones and twenty four track two inch tape machines. Like they used great equipment, and they ended up with great sounding records.
0: So going back before you got into the punk rock stuff, what kind of music were you into?
1: I originally I was exposed to music through my mom because she had this great weird eclectic record collection. You know, she had everything from Crosby, Sills, Nash and Young to Dvorak to stravinsky to like to john coltrane um the story she always told me is that i was conceived while she and my dad were listening to a love supreme by john coltrane <laughs> that might just be her version of apoc or her, you know there's no I, all my all my family's dead so i can't ask anyone but i love that little bit of possible apocrypha absolutely so so basically i had her records and then i had what was played on the radio, but I also was an insecure little kid. And I wanted to like the records that the cool kids liked, which was pink Floyd and the who, uh, and Led Zeppelin. And at the time I didn't really like any of that music, but I pretended to, because that was how you, you know, endeared yourself to the cool kids. Since since then, I've gone back and I like I've learned to love Led Zeppelin. I still don't like the Who that much, but like you know, I really like classic rock now. But at the time, I just pretended to like it until I discovered Devo and the Sex Pistols.
0: And so, I guess like were you a fan of Saturday Night Live too? Going to see that movie?
1: Oh yeah! I mean, I remember having a sleepover at my friend Brian Hoekstein's when we were in sixth grade. And somehow we this was maybe the first year SNL or first or second year, you know, with Gilda Radner, John Belushi. And somehow we saw it like we stayed up and watched it on low volume so his parents wouldn't wake up. And we just thought, like, we had discovered the weirdest subculture in the world. <laughs> and then, of course, years later, there was that amazing uh, performance of with fear on SNL. Absolutely. Yeah. Legendary now. Yeah. With Ian Mackay and John Joseph in the audience.
0: But like, I guess even before that though, like Devo and the B 52s were, were kind of showing up there, right? Like, I guess they have kind of famous performances in that early run of, of seasons.
1: Yeah. I mean, I got, I was really lucky cause I lived in Darien, Connecticut, you know, this very wealthy town, even though my mom and I were poor white trash on food stamps and welfare, but because we were close to Manhattan You know, we got weird radio stations from New York and you had SNL and, you know, weird record stores nearby where you could, you know, I couldn't afford the records, but I would go and like pick up the first Devo album and hold it and wonder what it sounded like and wonder if it sounded as weird as it looked. (laughs)
0: I guess, like, yeah, going like, where were you picking up records when you were eventually able to pick up records? Like, you know, having in had, terms of
1: buying, yeah, in terms of buying, in terms records. of buying records, yeah. Uh, there was a record store in my town called Johnny's, and it started off as a head shop. You know, they sold like rolling papers and bongs, and then they started selling records, and they sold a lot of terrible hippie records, and, like Grateful Dead bootlegs and things. But Johnny, who ran the store, was this wonderful weirdo. And so when New Wave and Punk Rock happened, he started selling that. And, you know, and my friends and I, like I said, we couldn't afford the records, but we would go in and just like, you know, just look at them, just, you know, just hold them. And then eventually, by like cutting lawns and doing odd jobs, we saved enough money to start being able to buy records. And then this magic moment I think in eighth or ninth grade we all saved enough money to go into Manhattan and go record shopping in New York City where'd you go when you went to Manhattan to go record shopping do you remember Ah, uh, there was j Music World down by the down by Wall Street um and then we started finding like as high sc- as we got into high school and got a little bit older like 15 16 we discovered there was rocks in your head um What were bleaker bobs, sounds, um, I just, all these weird little like new wave punk rock record stores.
0: I guess later on, would you have gone to rat cage too? I would imagine
1: rat cage. I don't remember that being a record store.
0: Okay. I think they had a, maybe they
1: just had a storefront for like a brief little window and and they probably, I remember, yes, I remember seeing, like, I remember walking by it and seeing like some of the East village punk rock guys hanging out there. But I didn't, I thought it was a record label and not a record store. So no, I, as far as I know, I don't think, you know, I don't think I ever bought a record there.
0: And I guess go, going back to like, um, you know, before in Connecticut, before, I guess even before you went to Manhattan, what was the first concert you went to? It doesn't have to be punk necessarily. The first concert I went to
1: was yes. At Madison square garden. Oh, that's a great one. Um, it was, and I've, yeah, it did, and I love Yes. Like, I know we're talking about punk rock, and but boy, do I, I mean, you know, close to the edge, and, you know, our f- Yes were are phenomenal. So I was, I think, 12, probably, yeah, 12, maybe 13, and my friend Mike McCarthy got us tickets to go see Yes at Madison Square Garden, and it was, yeah, it was awesome. And then... A couple of years later, I remember my first ever punk rock show. I got really lucky because I saw Fear at the Mud Club. Oh, what a show. So was, that would have been 80, 81. I don't... Or definitely the early early 80s. You know, like right after uh, that Fear of the Record came out. So that was before the SNL appearance, I guess? It would have been right. Maybe, maybe it was the same. Like, maybe they we're playing the mud club the night before SN. I don't know, but my friends and I drove it. We, we, we basically stole a car. <laughs> well, we borrowed it without telling the person we were borrowing it, which I guess is called that's stealing. Um, and we drove in thinking, okay, this is great. No, one's going to know. We're going to sneak into the city, see this punk rock show and drive back and no one will ever know. And of course the car broke down, you know, in, on canal street. And so we had that, like didn't get home until five in the morning, gotten all sorts of trouble. We didn't get arrested, but we got to see fear at the mud club. So it was worth it.
0: And I, I guess like, what was that show like vibe wise? Cause I can't imagine they would have done too many tours. So I guess it would have been right around that SNL appearance, which is pretty hectic from the recorded record. So what was that show like from your
1: memory? It was okay. So here's, and I don't know if you or the people listening will have had this experience, but like hardcore shows, I mean, shows in general back then, half of the show was the band and the music. And the other half was simply the fact that you were part of this scene, Mm -hmm. you know, like going, like being in lower Manhattan in 1980 or 81, whenever it was and seeing other punk rockers, because like where we were, we didn't, there were none, but like we didn't know. We lived in suburban Connecticut. Like we didn't know of anybody. And the fact that there were like people with tattoos and people with piercings, like we thought that was equally as exciting as seeing fear and hearing them. Just being in the present, being in this like dingy nightclub, you know, at midnight, in 1980 or 81 being surrounded by subversive punk rockers like that was that was as good as the music
0: oh yeah and and especially like the people you know that would have been in that room are like the people that would have been the foundation of new york hardcore you know a few years later or even right around then too i would imagine
1: yeah i mean it was i didn't my friends and i were a little bit younger like we were probably 14 15 so we were too scared and we were little you know like i mean n- none of us were more than 5 foot 8 or 5 foot 9 so like and some of these punk rockers they're they were tough you know like there were the nerdy skinny little suburban punk rockers and then you had like you know the murphy's law cromags yeah. misfits etc who i mean these were big scary people yeah um they've since all become friends of mine but like at the time when you're 14 years old and 5 foot 7 And there's John Joseph stage diving. You're like, you don't even feel like you're allowed to look at him.
0: Yeah. I was going to say at, at 40 years old and six foot one, 200 pounds, I would be scared shitless in that room.
1: Yeah. So especially for the first, you know, the first punk rock show we ever went to. And I think I'm trying to think what the second one. Oh, and then, and and I don't want to, I don't want to ramble on, too much, because I'm this sure is that all we
0: this is what this whole show's built for. So please oh, okay, go then, great on. So I'll,
1: absolutely so I'll ramble on. so then magic happened. and um this guy, Mark Mulcahy, I think that was his name. He was in a oh, he was in a legendary indie rock band that Tom York loved, But that was later on. Oh, I forget his name. And he, he started booking hardcore shows at a club in Bridgeport, Connecticut called Pogo's. And it was named after the cartoon character, not the dance. Okay, yeah. And it was this shitty little Irish bar with a stage. And he t- it was our version of CBGB's. Like, he talked them in to letting him throw shows. And I think the first show I vaguely remember seeing there was The Bad Brains, Oh, amazing. And, but this was, so suddenly, you know, we were still working up our nerve to go into the city, to go to CB's and A7 and Great Gildersleeves and, you know, all these places. But we could also drive 25 minutes and go to hardcore shows basically in our neighborhood. And everybody, because it was in between New York and Boston, everybody played there. Like as a resource, I can't like the Misfits played there, the Circle Jerks, the Gun Club, Flipper, uh, every small hardcore band, every big hardcore band, like everybody just, you know, it was like at the time we sort of took it for granted, not realizing what an amazing resource this was. Well, I think you're also just speaking to what an
0: amazing era that was for, for just music in general, but it's specifically punk music and hardcore music. But just like that's like a who's who of, of bands in the genre.
1: Yeah. And the place it, the place maybe held 75 people. But because again, because it was in between, you know, New York and Boston, everybody played there, you know. And and then what was really exciting is my friends and I started a band after seeing Fear We were like, okay, we're going to start a punk rock band. And then we found out there were all these other punk rock bands being started in Connecticut at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. And so we had a scene, you know, like, and it was really, we had a scene and then we had our our fanzine called CUD, the Connecticut Underground Dispatch. (laughs) Um, and the bands, I don't know if you've heard the, so the bands were uh seizure, 76% uncertain reflex from pain, violent children who became youth of today, young Republicans who also became youth of today, no milk on Tuesday, uh, all these, you know, really interesting Connecticut hardcore bands.
0: Yeah. Like obviously some of those bands go on to become legendary on their own right. And some of those bands go on to become members of legendary bands or some members, I should say, go on to become members of other legendary bands. But um, like, it's like, it's, it's also, I think awesome about that scene is that all those bands kind of sound different too, yourselves included. Like, it, it's not like there's a, a defined sound, like everything's fast and aggressive, but it, everyone's kind of taking it a slightly different approach to it. It seemed.
1: Yeah. Cause we are basically, and I think this is the, the genesis of every great scene is ultimately you're just an excited fan and you want to sound like your heroes, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know? So like we like in Vatican commandos, like we loved minor threat and we loved the clash and we loved circle jerks and black flag and bad brains. And we loved the damned machine gun etiquette. And we were like, okay, how do we sound like those things? Like it wasn't in a, in a way, there was never any effort made to be original. The goal was simply to enthusiastically sound like your heroes. And, and
0: the thing about the Vatican Commandos is like you can kind of hear elements of that. Not so much of the damned, I guess, um, but like maybe that's just I'm not hearing it. I go back and listen to that 7-inch again. Um, how did that
1: 7-inch come together, Hit Squad for God? Uh, and the damned, I think. It's more especially the album Machine Gun Etiquette. I mean, I think arguably one, I mean, if I had to pick like top three best early-ish punk rock records, that that never mind the bollocks and the first clash album, like I mean, machine gun etiquette. And I almost feel like in a way, the hardcore scene in the States might not have happened without machine gun etiquette. Cause that I feel like a lot of the early guys, you know, like like Henry and Ian, and a lot of the guys who sort of started hardcore, like on the West Coast, Greg Jen obviously was obsessed with the Stooges. Um, but on the East Coast, I feel like machine gun etiquette was the first time people realized like you could play really fast.
0: It's funny you say that too, because it's amazing how like, you know, that Empire record hits that scene a few years later, and it kind of causes that sonic Shift, but you're right, like machine gun etiquette, like that kind of like ferocious attack to punk rock is is you know foundational. I guess that DC stuff early on. But I guess it's that yesterday and today records, like having a record store that's like really well curated and just people like you know uh
1: putting you on to great records. hmm Um and oh so so going back to your question about the Vatican Commando set the first seven inch hit squad for God, our friend Bill Knapp. He, uh, was a, he's a little older than us and he had a recording studio in his basement. And so one day in, I guess it would have been 1982, the guys in the Vatican commandos and I, we all, we skipped school, which was, we were, we were sissies. I mean, like, you know, like the, the traditional idea of like punk rockers being like, like confident rebels who like play by their own rules. It's like, no, we were terrified suburban kids, (laughs) you know, I like I had a moped and I basically would have crushes on girls and never talk to them. Like we were the most terrified little like mind our own business, suburban punk rock kids. Um, So the the reason I say that is because we skipped school and I think it's the only time any of us ever skipped school was to go make a punk rock record
0: and i was going to say and it's also for something positive in the end you're like you're not skipping school to go drink and do drugs you're going to school to make you're skipping school to make art
1: yeah i mean art yeah lowercase but um (laughs) and yeah i mean i was talking to someone recently and i said like the only reason i ever skipped classes and i I'm almost ashamed to admit this. The only reason I ever skipped classes was to read books. If I was reading a book that I loved, I would skip a class so I could sit in the library and continue reading the book. Like, So my punk rock cred just completely got thrown out the window, I know.
0: Well, but, I don't know. I think, well, no, I was going to say, just like you were saying earlier on about like, you know, punk rock being diminished as far as people's like, you know, music skills in it. But like, I think also intellectually too, like, you know, there's a lot of heavy ideas in punk rock, especially for young people to be exposed to.
1: Oh, without question. You know, I mean, some were like one of my favorite punk rock bands who ended up becoming not a punk rock band was Adam and the Ants.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the first Adam in the Ants album, um, Dirk Wears White Socks, is a really odd punk rock record. And even the second one, and they like had songs about futurism, you know, this weird Italian art movement. And they had, like talked about Lenny Bruce and how like. So, we, yeah, you're right through like through punk rock and, you know, interviews and reading Maximum Rock and Roll and Big Takeover, we got exposed to like. Politics and rebellion and and I guess the idea in a way you could say, especially by the late 70s and the early 80s, like the, a schism had been created between U.K. and U.S. punk rock, whereas U.K. had gone into like – and I still love a lot of the music like GBH and The Exploited, but it had definitely become like, like drunken nihilism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I mean? Like, great records, but, like, they weren't really all that, you know, nuanced or insightful in terms of, like, the things that they were talking about.
0: Well, like that drunk punk UK82 kind of um, punk and disorderly sound and yeah. scene type thing.
1: Which, I, again, I love those records, but it was, an e- it was an ethos of, like, have big spiky hair and get drunk on a street corner.
0: Yeah. No, it's very, very different than like what Jell-O-Biafra is trying to do at the same time.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you listen to Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables and like, um, that was the first time my friends and I had ever heard about Pol Pot and the Cambodian genocide. Yeah, absolutely. Um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so like there was, there was a lot more, it was a lot more thoughtful. Oh, and then so, but I still haven't fully answered your question about making that little seven—the punk, the Vatican Commando seven. So we we skipped school, feeling like badasses, and we went to Bill Knapp's basement in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, and we recorded it. It probably, I mean, like start to finish, the whole thing probably took two hours, if that, and that's with like breaks to eat pizza, you know. So. <laughs> I, 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 mean, there was obviously like back in those days, there were no overdubs cause no one knew what that was. Like you, you put some microphones in front of your band and you played and that was it. Like you didn't do multiple takes. You didn't, you just record, it was, you know, documenting the sound of your band. But I guess
0: that's why it rips still, you know, it's just like living and dying for that one record. It, that thing still holds up. Oh, thanks. Um, I guess like and you were saying early on, like, you know, your, your band was very much a suburban kind of thing compared to, like, what was going on in New York. But you did play shows with some of those bands, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, there one of our only claims to fame was, I believe, one of Agnostic Front's first shows was opening up for us. That's awesome. With, obviously, Roger singing by that point, right? I think so. I mean, this was just because as you were well back in those days, like you would play a show and like we were <laughs> in Connecticut by, you know, whatever, whenever agnostic front started, we were one of the better known bands in Connecticut. So like if a band who was, you know, like bigger elsewhere came in, oftentimes they would be, you know, we would go on after them. So technically I think that like, agnostic front one of their shows might have been going on before us which if that if it turns out that's not true it's still a good story
0: it's still a good absolutely um so what kind of bands did you play with like uh with vatican commandos was it mainly kind of those you know the scene bands you were talking about earlier oh is everybody
1: i mean it's just this and then okay then this i have to talk about this other bit of magic that happened a little bit later in 1982 is Sean and Brian Sheridan opened a club called the Anthrax in Stamford, Connecticut, eventually moved to Norwalk and it became much more established. But originally it was just a storefront with an art gallery up top and a tiny little stage downstairs. And so now suddenly I'm like, I'm 16 years old. No, Okay. 15 years old, Six, 15 or sixteen, and I have two punk rock venues within a twenty-five minute drive of my house. <laughs> like, this was this was mad. Like honestly, it's all been downhill since then. Like that was like the pinnacle of everything great. Like being able to go see, you know, Circle Jerks at the Anthrax and go to see Bad Brains at Pogos in one weekend, and then. Oh, okay. So to end, I'm sorry. I'm meandering, but to answer your question, this is the bread and butter of the show. Please Moby go on. So who we played with, I mean, we played with everybody from like lesser known bands like Adrenaline, OD, um, a lot of the Boston bands like Gangrene, Freeze, um, trying to think, I'm pretty sure we opened up for Flipper. We opened up for the Misfits. We opened up for Black Flag Um, but when I say that, it's not like a normal person concert where there's like the opening act and the headliner. This was like, as you know, there was like, (laughs) of course, eight bands on one bill. Yeah. So when I say we opened up, it's like, so did everybody. Like every Connecticut band was also on those bills.
0: Would, would bands, would bands choose between Pogos and the Anthrax or would they do both in the same weekend type thing?
1: Oh, you just did everything. I mean, like, there was no—as there. As far as I knew, there was nothing proprietary. There was no there was no, no exclusionary booking. I mean, because basically no one knew what they were doing. Like, it was kind of remarkable that anyone knew how to turn on a PA.
0: Yeah, there's no radius clauses or anything to get in the way of playing pogos in the anthrax twice for the service. Those
1: were two words that were not part of anyone's lexicon. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> maybe for the better, maybe for the better. Um, would these bands attract kind of the same people to them? Or would it be kind of different scenes showing up to see, say the misfits versus AOD.
1: Oh no, we all went to every show. Everybody, everybody. I mean, they're, you know, like we, cause this was also before like genre, like, like punk rock genres. It, the schism hadn't really happened. Like we liked, we liked everything. Um, I'm trying to think, was there? You know, we liked the Clash, and we liked the Exploited, and we liked Black Flag, and we liked Adam and the Ants, and we loved Bad Brains, and we also loved the Ramones. Like it was as long as it was loosely. Part of the, I guess, rubric, is that the right word? Like the, mm-hmm. the sort of the punk rock, like the new wave punk rock rubric. There were some people like I loved a lot of synth pop. I loved, you know, a lot of much more gentle new wave. And a lot of my punk rock friends didn't like that. But within the sort of hardcore punk world, like as far as I knew, everybody liked everything. What about like a band like Hose? Did you ever play with them? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's the first time I met Rick. Um, there was a weird show at the Anthrax. I guess it would have been spring of 1983. I think that's correct. Maybe it was 84. Um, <clears throat> getting on a little bit. It's funny. Like, to me, by by 84, it's like, ah. So I was already over the hill by then. <laughs> um, so, yeah, playing at Anthrax. And I think Brian Sheridan came up to me and said, Oh, this is Rick, the guitar player in the band hose. He forgot to bring his amp. Can he borrow yours? And so that would have been the first time I met Rick Rubin would have been night, I guess. Yeah. 1983 at the anthrax. And, um, I see him every now and then, and we still laugh about the fact that, you know, we're old. (laughs) I think it's funny too. Like, you
0: know, um, it's, it's amazing how many people in this scene, like you're saying, it's like outsiders that were drawn to punk rock. And I think still it's outsiders and people that don't necessarily feel like they fit in with the mainstream that are drawn to this thing. And how many of these people go on to do incredible things? Like here yourself and Rick Rubin at a show that couldn't have had more than like, what, 200
1: people there at most? Are you kidding? There were maybe 50 people. I mean, 50 was like 200. You're talking unless I'm mistaken like they're triple digits in the number 200 like (laughs) we never we until I don't think I played in front of an audience of triple digits until I was 28 years old like I did there I, I don't remember ever being except for like some maybe going to some of the rock hotel shows in New York at the Ritz like those were big so like there were a lot of people there but The shows that I'm talking about, like, I mean, Anthrax maybe held 40 people and Pogo's maybe, you know, like you could get a hundred and a hundred people in there, but like 200 people in one place to see music (laughs) back then. Like that just, that just didn't ever happen.
0: No, I was I was trying to be as generous as I could be with that, but it's still like, you know, I guess it goes to my point even more, you know, and even on the, the next Vatican Commando 7-inch, which I know you don't play on, but like that 7-inch cover's drawn by Rob Zombie.
1: Yeah, yeah, Rob was, uh, he went, I think, SVA with Jim Spad, the bass player.
0: It's It's wild how many people from this little scene wind up, you know, shaping pop culture a few years later.
1: Well, I know, I know you talked to Fred Armisen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so Fred, Fred was in that scene as well. I mean, I didn't, I don't remember him from back then because he was on Long Island and Long Island was its own kind of world. But like I see Fred all the time and, uh, you know, that is basically the basis of our friendship is reminiscing (laughs) about old punk rock.
0: I honestly think that's the only reason Fred tolerates me is because
1: he knows I can nerd (laughs) out with him about punk rock. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think he might be a little bit younger than me because there's definitely like a a little bit of an age thing. Because by by 1984, 1985, I started moving away from the hardcore world. Um, Largely because it started to scare me too much. Um, Meaning, I remember this one show in particular, it would have been maybe 1984 1985 it was I think Cro-Mags Murphy's Law Motorhead at Rock Hotel and it was truly violent like it wasn't punk rockers bumping into each other and occasionally falling down and then helping each other up it was actual like blood and broken bones violence and I remember being really like genuinely taken aback like I was like oh this isn't This isn't fun anymore. This is scary. Um, And so that's when I kind of started, like, I still loved the music, but I started, I stopped going to shows because there was a moment when things got really dark and violent.
0: Yeah, it's, you hear about that. And it's, you also hear kind of parallel happening, you know, a few years earlier in the West Coast with, you know, the, the arrival of hardcore. But it seems like when it came to New York, it was like there was a shift and things got uh, heavier.
1: It shifted, yeah, I mean, there were still, like, I'm, like, I remember going to shows in New York, like, seeing Black Flag at Rock Hotel at the Ritz in, like, 82 or 83, and it was still, like, it was aggressive, but the moment someone felt that fell down, there were five people picking him up,
2: mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to a couple years later, it just got, like, genuinely, like, like, People jumping on each other's heads with engineer boots and people, you know, compound fractures and skull fractures and blood. And like it was it got it got dark and scary. And then, of course, it got sort of lighter, like when then like Gorilla Biscuits and, you know, a lot of that stuff happened, which was a lot more sort of playful in a way.
0: Yeah, I guess going back to, you know, even even before this, like, so when, you know, the, you leave the Vatican Commandos, uh, did you start AWOL
1: immediately or did, was there any bands in between the two? On um, the, AWOL and the Vatican Commandos coexisted. I did, I was only in one other band in high school and it is, it, it, well, uh, so I had a huge crush on the singer. Her name was Sarah. And so I wanted to be in this band in the hopes that maybe Sarah would like me and I would finally have a girlfriend. And, of course, that didn't happen. But we were really bad. I mean, like, really, <laughs> like, like we only played covers. And the edgiest cover we played was Da-do-do-do-da-da-da-da um, do, 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 da, 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 da by The Police. That's the edgiest one. Like, we were – that was the edgiest. And so, like, I'm playing the Vatican Commandos, playing hardcore, playing – you know, sad Gothic music in a wall. And then desperately trying to date this woman, Sarah and playing, like we played a Steve Miller band cover. We played, like we were so, I think we played a squeeze cover. Like we were so gentle and I just, I just wanted to have a girlfriend. And I thought this was my best way of trying to do that.
0: So obviously this band would not overlap with the other two projects. I imagine where would this band kind of play? Would it just be
1: like, like cafe type shows? Yeah, like, we played in, like, this, the cafeteria. Okay. Um, we played in someone's basement while, you know, like, the cool kids drank, uh, I don't know, Ballantine beer out of plastic cups. Like, we, so, it was, we, we were, we were bad, and it didn't last long, and, you know, but luckily, I still had, you know, the Vatican Commandos and AWOL to play in as well.
0: And how's a basement show going to compete with, like, a Bad Brain show or a Reflex
1: from Pain show, you know? I don't know. I mean, I guess I so desperately wanted – it was driven by, like – because as much as I loved going to hardcore shows in 80, 81, 82, the the boy-to-girl ratio at these shows did not necessarily bode well for me wanting to have a girlfriend. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, no one you, – you didn't go to see the Bad Brains at Pogo's hoping to meet girls because it was 99% dudes and like then like two or three beautiful punk rock girls who dated the cool guys in the scene who, you know, the rest of us weren't even allowed to like talk to or be in the same – you know, stand within six feet of.
0: What about AWOL, though? Who would AWOL play with? Because obviously, you know, I, I don't think it would fit in with the same stuff Vatican Commandos was playing with.
1: No, we still... I mean, there was a lot of eclecticism at these shows. So AWOL played at the Anthrax and AWOL played at Pogo's. Um, we played a couple shows in the city. But, I mean, obviously, like the hardcore kids, they were polite, but they weren't... They weren't into it. You know, but we... Was, I mean, these bills, there, there was a lot of sort of eclectic overlap, you know, think of a band like mission of Burma. I mean, mission of Burma would play on, you know, at hardcore shows. They certainly were not a hardcore band.
0: No, but I was going to bring up mission of Burma because that I was first to expose. Sorry, I was first exposed to mission of Burma through you and your cover, um, years later, but like, did you ever play with them or when was the first time you saw mission of Burma?
1: So that record store I mentioned earlier, Johnny's, um, I had heard Mission of Burma on college radio and I loved it. I think I heard Academy fight song or that's when I reached for my revolver. And I bought the, I think Academy fight song seven inch at Johnny's. And then a friend of mine bought their first EP. Is that correct? I, well, basically some friends and I started buying their records and the most random bit of kismet happened. I was working at a pharmacy, and a woman came in to pick up her film, and she had the same last name as the bass player from Mission of Burma. And I randomly asked her, I said, your son, by any chance, isn't in Mission of Burma, is he? And she said, yeah, that's Clint. He's my son. <laughs> And so I became friends with Clint Conley, who was obviously a few years older than me. He was the first rock star I ever met, and I was so nervous. Like, you know, I went to his mom's house, and he and I had lunch when he was home from Boston. And I brought him a copy of the Vatican Commando seven inch. Um, but I was—I had never—I had never met and talked to a real rock star before. Like, he was Clint Conley, and he was in Mission of Burma, and they were great. And so I was. I don't know if I said much because I was too nervous. And then I think the second rock star I met was Ian MacKay at Great Gildersleeves. <laughs> I think those were like a, you know, probably pretty, two pretty down to earth rock stars to meet for your first two. But I was still terrified. Like I, 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 I just thought like anybody in the world who made a record, they were in a different league than I was. And I simply, it was not my place to talk to them Certainly not to talk to them as an equal, but definitely, I mean, like, I just felt, you know, like I remember going up to Ian Mackay and when I say I met him, I went up to him and said, Mr. Mackay, my name's Moby. I just want to say, like, I'm a big fan of your band. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> I think I said the same thing to him when the first time I met him as well. I think that's <laughs> the best way to do it. Right. Like, what else are you going to say
1: to him? Even then. Yeah, I was just I was just too I was like too little and scared to have a real conversation with him.
0: Uh, what was the first time you saw Minor Threat? What, what show was that?
1: Let me think. It probably would have been that Great Gildersleeve show. Great Gildersleeves was a country western bar uh, in the East Village, and they occasionally had punk rock shows. And so I think because I got really lucky. Um, a friend of mine, I guess in eighty one had moved to washington d c and I went down to visit him, and we went to a cool record store and there was this really beautiful punk rock woman working behind the counter. and I tried to endear myself to her, and so I asked her i said what can what what record would she recommend? and she recommended uh, the first Minor Threat 7-inch. Or I think the first. Maybe Actually, maybe not the first one. It was basically um, In My Eyes and Out of Step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I bought that and loved it. And then, yes, then we heard that Minor Threat were playing at Sleeves, and so we went there, and I very politely introduced myself to Ian. Did you ever see the band Why Die by any chance?
0: From Philadelphia? i never...
1: No, I have never heard of a punk rock band from Philadelphia. I'm, I'm, I, and I'm ashamed to admit that. Oh, I'm going to say definitely. Uh, you got to check out Why Die?
0: They're, they're the one recommendation I will uh, impart in any way if I can. They are a fantastic hardcore band. But um, I guess they wouldn't have played Connecticut. Like, it's amazing how regional stuff
1: was at that time too. Yeah, I just like D, like DC. We knew. I mean, thanks to Flex Your Head. Thanks to you know, like we knew all the bands from DC. You know, Teen Idols, Government Issue, Faith, Void, Minor Threat, Scream, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like. But um, and then Boston, we knew a ton of bands. New York, New Jersey. You know, like the Misfits, AOD. But Philadelphia, no, I've never, I've never heard of a punk rock band from
0: Philadelphia. Yeah, Yai is 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 awesome. But yeah, like once again, it's like it's it's pre-internet. <laughs> There's not necessarily a way to yeah. kind of just go for search in different areas, in the same way. Which is much of the way I heard the A Wall Seven. And I wanted to ask you about the song Holy Mountain. It's kind of got like a, an almost X feel to it. Is were they an influence at all?
1: Yeah, I I loved and continued to love X I mean those first three albums you know Los Angeles Wild Gift and Under the Big Black Sun I mean they're just flawless Yeah. Um, mind boggling how good those records are um, so yeah so they were definitely like well X and the Gun Club that sort of I wouldn't even know how to describe like Hunter con- tree-ish inspired punk rock um, so holy mountain that song which I have not thought about since probably 1984 <laughs> was definitely definitely inspired by uh the gun club and X
0: see yeah, that's the thing like I, I think that record you know holds up in a, in, a, in a real way and it's it's interesting how you know like it's it's obviously sonically going in one direction but there's all the songs kind of do have Distinct kind of vibes to them too. Yeah. Have you ever thought about reissuing it or no? Uh,
1: mm, I haven't. <laughs> I, no, I mean, no, I have. Every now and then the bass player. And the drummer, because we're you know we're on a text thread with each other. Every now and then, one of them will mention it, and we sort of laugh about it. But no, no one's ever really seriously thought about reissuing it.
0: Okay, well, one day, because <laughs> it, it's an expensive record to track down, especially with the insert and everything. But one day, I, I think I could see the light of day. Moby, this has been unbelievable. And at some point down the line, would you come back and do a
1: part two? Yeah, of course I would. Love. I mean, like I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. Um, And, you know, it's what's funny is I realized uh, that, I, you know, I moved to L.A. about 10 years ago and at some point I realized that the majority of my friends are people from the early hardcore scene,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which is in a way kind of odd because since then I've been involved in a lot of other music and a lot of other music scenes, but I don't have like I don't have any I was a hip hop DJ for a while um I obviously made my own records I was you know in the rave world etc all of my friends are old punk rockers
0: I don't know there's just something about punk rock and the people that you meet in it where there's almost like a a built-in bullshit detector where you can be real with people in a different kind of
1: way knowing everyone Yeah and and, and ultimately everybody is a fan Yeah and everybody started tiny. Like I had dinner. Um, Youth of Today were playing in L.A. recently. So we had this dinner. Who was there? It was like Tim from Operation Ivy, Rancid, uh, Ray and Parcel I think maybe Walter from Gorilla Biscuits, Tony from No Doubt, Toby from H2O. So like this like all and like all my punk rock friends and we were all there. And the entire conversation was what you and I just talked about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know? Like basically, you know, what was the B side to this seven inch? And did you see this show? And when was the first time you saw Fugazi? And when just basically like it's it's like whenever punk rockers get together, we immediately become like 16 year old kids sitting in our bedrooms.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's 100% what the, the genesis of this podcast has always been. It's like you look at everyone interesting in pop culture. They either came from punk rock or they came from rap. Like there's, you know, like in, at, at, at some core level, they don't have to have been in that their whole lives. But like at some point in their life, they pass
1: through one of those two worlds and wound up doing whatever they're doing otherwise. Yeah, and punk rock as an influence, I mean, like as a cultural influence, is so healthy. I really think because like and forgive me for stating the obvious but like everything about it was DIY like if you wanted to put out a record you had to learn how to record a record if you wanted to release the album you had or single you had to learn how to press vinyl you had to bring it to the radio station on you know the college radio station that some friend of yours, maybe it was DJing on at three o'clock in the morning. If you wanted to play a show, you had to learn how to become a promoter. If you wanted t-shirts, you had to learn how to make t-shirts. And there was just like that DIY humility. And so even as people go on to do like much bigger things and much different things, I think you, you still hold on to that, that, that humility of like, you know, the thrill of being 17 years old and playing to an audience of 45 people.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, like, before I let you go, like, what was that like then when all of a sudden you're at a point where, you know, you're one of the biggest entertainers in the world, you know? And like, what was that like to go from, you know, this sort of punk rock world where, especially where you have this like little Ian Mackay on your shoulder at all times, whispering in your ear, telling you, you know, like to stay that punk rock path to all of a sudden find out that you're like a a
1: pop star. Uh, it was complicated. I mean, I remember the first time I played a show in the early nineties and people in the audience had heard the music before I played it. And it was such a, that, that had never happened before. Yeah. Like people, people knew a song while I, before I played it. And I was like, that, and it just seemed so weird. So every aspect, everything you just described was unexpected and weird to the point where I'm not even sure it happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I know that my, I know that the punk rock, my punk rock history, I'm pretty sure that happened. The, what you just described, like selling a lot of records and playing in front of, tens and hundreds of thousands of people it's altogether possible that didn't really happen because it, it shouldn't have and it doesn't make sense and it was just yeah it was just so weird and the weirdest part was when it started to seem normal and that's really you know like there's a lot of corruption and a lot of compromise in that so I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that like that period of like entitlement and arrogance and self-involvement. I hope that that has kind of fallen by the wayside for me because it certainly wasn't healthy.
0: Um, I kind of, I kind of can only imagine what it would feel like, but I, I definitely get that surreal nature and I've only experienced like a, like a sliver of what that must have been like. Um, because it, it does feel like it just might not have
1: happened. It just could have just been a dream. Yeah. Yep in fact i'm now that now that we're talking i'm pretty sure it never happened so let's just assu- let's assume that you know my involvement with the world of music started with seeing fear at the mud club and ended seeing Murphy's Law and Cro-Mags in 1984.
0: Uh, But then you, then you deprive me of getting into punk rock through that's when I reached for my revolver being covered (laughs) and seeing the video. So I, I need, I need you to stay with us, please Moby. And also we need you to play with us on the Bowery that all those years later too.
1: Yep. Okay. So, well, we'll just sort of consign (laughs) that to the world of like shadowy. It might've happened or it might not have happened.
0: Absolutely. Well, this show definitely happened. Moby, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, and we'll do a part two at some point. Thank you, Moby, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Moby will be back for a part two in the near future because we got... We got more to discuss, Moby and I. We got lots more punk stuff to get to. And in the meantime, check out Moby's brand new album, All Visible Objects, available on Little Idiot slash Mute. And uh, yeah, check it out. It's great. Moby is a, uh, I owe this guy. The guy showed me Mission of Burma. Here I am as a young kid, you know, lost in the world. And here's Moby, this massive pop star going, hey, kid. Check out one of the greatest bands of all time. Flip and then just tosses me the Mission of Burma CD. Yeah, metaphorically, I'm speaking, like by covering the record, and then Anti Flag covered the same song on their demo. I think shortly thereafter. I think you know. I don't think they were inspired by Moby to cover that. Ah, a conversation for another day. You know. Uh, thank you again, Moby, for coming on this show. And you know, in 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 celebration of Moby being on this show, why not next week? celebrate one of Moby's favorite bands and one of my absolute favorite bands. And I think probably many of your favorite bands ever next week on Turned Out a punk it's void week. That is right. We are going to be celebrating one of the greatest DC hardcore bands ever. There's a lot of them, but yeah, I think, I think void has got to be like right near the very tippy top for for all of us out there. Not maybe not all of us. Don't want to speak for you. You might be like, nah, I like Fugazi and Lungfish more. You might be like, I like SOA and and uh uh, you know, I'm running out of <laughs> marginal man more, you know, like you, who knows where you're going to go with it, but, uh, Void is certainly probably up there for you. And next week on this show, Void is number one for us. I will be joined, uh, first by Chris Stover, the bass player of Void. And then later on, uh, a few days later on in Bubba Dupree for the guitar player of Void both, oh, they're both amazing episodes for completely different reasons. I'm very excited for you to hear them both. So that's it, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, check out that new Moby record, check out some Void. There's, there's, there's some Void out there. Get, listen to some of that. And until we talk next week, remember Black Lives Matter, the lives of indigenous people matter. Go out right now, um, get involved, uh, research, show up, contribute financially if you can. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very important time. Fuck fascism, fuck Nazis, Stay aware of what's going on. Wear a mask. Go out there and make your own culture. Um, And uh, sign your organ donor card. And and I love you. And I'll see you next week on the show. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar,
0: fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health.